My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. Episode 16, A Sleazeball in Sydney The chain of events that brought me back to Utah as an adult really began in Berlin when I was diagnosed with HIV and started taking protease inhibitors and the triple combination therapy, the medication that ultimately saved and then stole my life the life I had worked so very hard to attain. I'm not going to bore you by repeating the litany of miseries those medications brought us. I covered that as well as I could in the last episode. With each new generation of HIV medication, the short-term side effects were getting less and less severe. The long-term side effects on our bodies were, at that point, still anybody's guess. I can't speak for my entire generation, but for me at that time, the very concept of long-term side effects was nothing more than a pipe dream. I still thought if I was lucky, I might live long enough to see the new century, but honestly, it never occurred to me that I might live for decades into that new century. Whenever medical professionals discuss long-term side effects, I just kind of tuned them out because I didn't think it really applied to me. When I started my third or fourth generation of HIV meds, I was thrilled to discover I could actually taste and smell my food again. Once again, eating was a pleasure instead of a tedious task I had to endure three times daily so I wouldn't throw up. That made the constant nausea quite a bit easier to handle. I think that was also about the time I realized the all-encompassing, never-ending exhaustion would be a permanent fixture in my truncated life. A successful banker friend let me in on a little secret everyone was using to cut the side effects that remained. I quickly discovered this dirty little secret was fueling the careers of many, if not most, of my high-functioning, successful friends in New York at the time. The only way I could make it through the day in my posh new Madison Avenue office was if I self-medicated with microdoses of crystal methamphetamine in my morning and afternoon coffee. Honestly, there's no way I could have kept up the pace my new career in the news industry required had I not taken my friend's advice and self-medicated with very small amounts of crystal meth. A roommate of mine, who was an Emmy Award-winning TV producer, loved to tell a humorous story that happened to him on a TV set while working. Right when the director yelled quiet on the set, he reached into his pocket to get some gum and his bottle of meth fell out and rolled onto the set. Embarrassed, he threw his gum after the meth and quickly grabbed them both. A colleague standing next to him just casually said, Hey, don't worry about it. Everybody thought it was coke. I was working for a startup news organization run by a bunch of former executives from the New York Times, including the former president of the Times, Lance Primus. Our company was basically an innovative dot-com printing and distribution service for established newspapers to help them reach readers outside their normal distribution areas, as well as at special events worldwide. Say you're a German on a business trip, and you want to get that day's Berliner Tagesspiegel, Süddeutsche Zeitung, or a Handelsblatt while you're in New York, Los Angeles, London, or even Tokyo. Or you're a large corporation that wants a high-profile sponsorship opportunity at the World Economic Forum, United Nations General Assembly, or the G8 Summit. We could deliver to every head of state or corporate mogul his hometown newspaper, real-time, compliments of your company at any of these major events or prominent hotels worldwide. 
I was in charge of negotiating contracts and managing relationships with newspaper companies in Western and Eastern Europe, including the three newspapers mentioned above, and I spent most of my time on the road. Before every flight, I would find a gay purser or flight attendant and let him know I was on HIV meds and would occasionally have to make emergency trips to the bathroom against any warning signs to stay seated. In those days, the solidarity of our international gay sorority trumped the FAA rules, and they always covered for me. In return, I did my best to get back to my seat before landing. There was only one occasion when I actually landed in Frankfurt while still sitting in a first-class toilet. I emerged laughing hysterically because it reminded me of one of the Bertolt Brecht poems that got him expelled from Nazi Germany. The poem described Hitler sitting on his golden toilet in the famous marble bathroom of his palatial personal train while shitting all over Germany. My employer sent me on my first round-the-world trip by extending my territory to include New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. I was to sign on new newspapers, printers, and distributors. I was also to begin preparations for our presence at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. I was thrilled, and my lifelong dream of seeing Australia was finally coming true. My first stop was Auckland, New Zealand, where I successfully negotiated contracts with printers and distributors, but unfortunately had limited success with the national newspapers there. I couldn't believe my luck, though, when I discovered not only was I in Auckland the weekend of the world's most prestigious sailboat race, the America's Cup, but I had been invited to watch the race from the deck of my friend Dominic's Swiss banker's yacht. We watched Team New Zealand win the America's Cup, while all the surrounding boats watched us sipping champagne and being served a seven-course meal on the biggest, most magnificent yacht in the harbour. I managed to arrive in Sydney a couple days before their gay circuit party, the Sleazeball. I had been given the name of the reigning queen of Sydney's gay scene, Malcolm Stewart. I jokingly dubbed him Axel because, well, the entire gay social life of Sydney seemed to revolve around him. Tickets for the sleazeball were already sold out, but Axel had saved one for me. I always felt so out of place and out of step at American gay circuit parties, but Axel and his friends went out of their way to make me feel at home and include me in everything. It gave my soul a huge sigh of relief to just be my crazy, eccentric, gregarious self in a culture that actually appreciated it. Sydney's sleazeball with Axel and his friends was the most fun I'd had since leaving Berlin. At one point, we encountered a group of pretentious A-list muscle queens from Los Angeles. It was one of those moments where I was frankly embarrassed to be an American. The thing that always puzzled me about that generation of A-list American gays, especially the queens from L.A., was how they devoted their life's energy to looking and acting exactly like the guy standing right next to them. This conformity gene was something I just didn't possess. I never had, and frankly, I couldn't even get my head around it. Every attempt I made at squeezing myself into their narrow norms resulted in open ridicule from the very men I was trying to impress. I only knew how to be me, and America's A-list society of gays made it abundantly clear that my version of me was not appreciated in their ditto-head world. Another thing I found strange was how these guys were always in groups. You almost never saw just one perfect American Adonis. No, these Adonai preferred to travel in packs like wolves. Rather than just meeting at the club like everyone else on Earth, 
These guys would first assemble at some predetermined meeting point so they could all enter the club together as a pack of polished plastic perfection. These perfect American Adonai certainly had it down when it came to knowing how to be arrogant, pretty, and prissy, but they hadn't the slightest clue how to be sexy or hot. They would spend hours, even weeks, and hundreds and hundreds of dollars finding the perfect shirt to wear, which they would take off within the first 30 seconds of entering the club. These guys all look so much alike, I could barely tell them apart. Every one of them was at least 6 feet tall and 200 pounds with zero body fat. They all had blue eyes and their blonde hair was feathered to perfection. However, other than the carefully coiffed Crystal Carrington hair, they were entirely devoid of body hair. They actually shaved their entire bodies. Rubbing up against the shaved back of one of these sweaty, steroided sorority sisters on the dance floor was about as erotic as dancing with wet sandpaper. At one point, one of their boyfriends had apparently taken too much ketamine, so they just left him on a bench and went back out onto the dance floor. The problem was, this bench was at the top of a long, very dangerous stairwell leading down to the bathrooms. My new friends and I were kind of keeping an eye on the situation because it was so clearly about to go very wrong. Of course, no sooner had his friends left than he decided he had to go to the bathroom, only he couldn't walk. So we all ran over to intervene. He was a big guy, and it took two of us to prevent him from falling down the stairs, while someone else ran to get him water, juice, and some kind of sugary candy to raise his glucose levels. This little drama went on for a few minutes until he finally started coming around, at which point the pack of perfectly polished plastic Adonai came back to reclaim him. But instead of thanking us for taking care of him as they should have done, they threatened to beat us up for trying to take advantage of him. I tried to explain, but Axel just grabbed my arm, rolled his eyes, and pulled me back out onto the dance floor. This whole experience just reaffirmed my rule of always avoiding Americans when traveling abroad. As I was leaving the sleazeball, I ran into this incredibly hot Latin guy in his trick, so I convinced them both to come back to my hotel. It was clear from the start that the Latin guy and I were really into each other. Uh, we did our best to include the other guy, but after a while he left and the two of us played well into the next day. After leaving Australia, my next stops were Johannesburg, and then Cape Town, South Africa, where I used to live, and then finally back home to New York. When I returned, my boss informed me they wanted me to move to Sydney for a year to manage our Sydney office during the upcoming 2000 Olympics. I was so excited I could barely contain myself. Once again, my arrival in Sydney was timed perfectly. I got there right before Mardi Gras, the five-day holy holiday of Australia's gay calendar. That first night, while taking a break from dancing, I locked eyes with this incredibly hot Latin man on the other side of the room. One of the first things I had learned in Sydney was the rules for picking up men were pretty much the same as in Berlin. There was none of that incomprehensible cat-and-mouse game the Americans liked to play. If you liked someone in Australia, you just walked up to him and asked him if he wanted to shag. So I walked over, pounded his chest a couple of times with my fingers, and said, You're hot. So are you, he said with this charming Australian accent. Then he shoved my back against a brick wall, poured a dose of GHB and a chaser down my throat, and started kissing me. We were so into each other, making out on the dance floor, we were knocking over people around us like bowling pins. Axel took one look at us, burst out laughing, and said, It was only a matter of time. Have you guys even exchanged names yet? Of course we hadn't, but good on you, mate. 
That's how I met Stevie, and we were joined at the hip for the next couple of years, first in Sydney, and then later in Miami Beach. Like all Mardi Gras festivals everywhere, it ended on a Tuesday night at midnight. Stevie and I went back to my new apartment and played for a bit, but then I had to kick him out so I could get up at 8 a.m. to present my company's proposal to the Sydney Olympic Committee. In spite of the fact that I had just flown 20-plus hours from New York, had had less than five hours sleep in five days, I somehow managed to get up the next morning, shower, put on my suit, find my way to the Olympic Committee offices, and give my company's presentation. They seemed to like it, and I was very pleased with myself for having actually made it through without any major gaffes. When I got back to my apartment, a little full of myself, I glanced in the mirror and, to my horror, discovered my face was covered in glitter. A few days later, I received news from my home office. Not only had the proposal been accepted, but the committee complimented my boss on my particularly animated presentation. I'll never know if the Olympic Committee liked my presentation in spite or because of the glitter. I mean, these blokes were Australian. My Sydney apartment, which doubled as our company offices, was right downtown, just off Hyde Park. I worked 12 or 13 plus hours a day, balancing that impossible 14-hour time difference with New York. Most nights, I either woke up or stayed up till 1 or 2 in the morning so I could call into my New York office's yesterday morning morning meeting. Then I went back to bed at 2 or 3 a.m., set the alarm for 8 a.m. so I could be ready for my Sydney working hours starting at 9 a.m. To be honest, it was exhausting but exhilarating and a hell of a lot of fun. I had also volunteered to be the placard bearer for the country of Russia during the opening and closing ceremonies. Representing the country of Russia instead of the Soviet Union for the first time in the Olympics was for me and my Russian family a small but very poignant victory. On the surface, my life in Sydney was perfect, and I was having the time of my life We spent weekends on Bondi Beach, exploring the Janolan Caves and the magnificent Blue Mountains, flying up to North Queensland to relax on the beaches of the most spectacularly beautiful tropical paradise on Earth, or flying down to Melbourne to visit my friend Chris, who I had met that first summer in New York on Fire Island. I was in heaven. One evening, Stevie and I were walking past the hotel where I had stayed the first time I was in Sydney, and he started telling me about this really hot guy he met and played with in that hotel during sleazeball last year. That's when it suddenly occurred to me, um, Stevie, honey, that was me. Until that moment, neither of us realized we had met and played the year before. My life in Sydney was perfect. I had never been happier. It was everything I had worked my whole life for, working a full-time job while studying full-time to complete my undergraduate degree at Northwestern, my three postgraduate degrees, that difficult stint as deputy director of Russian broadcasting at Radio for Europe, and negotiating contracts in three languages and 30-plus nations. Finally, I had the dream life I had worked so very hard to achieve. The eight or nine months I lived in Sydney were without a doubt the happiest times of my life. I just had to keep self-medicating to cover the exhaustion, and so I wouldn't hear the voices in my head that kept asking, why me? Why was I the lucky one who had survived AIDS when dozens and dozens of my friends had not? I dealt with the survival guilt by telling myself I was just fulfilling the promise I had made to all my dying friends. I promised them I would enjoy every moment of my amazing life with a vengeance, knowing I had to enjoy life for me, and my army of gay angels. So I just stayed busy and continued to suppress these thoughts and my constant exhaustion with ever-increasing amounts of meth.
I flew all over Australia to set up relationships with various newspapers, printing and distribution facilities, and continued to get ready for the Olympics. Once the Olympics began, every morning I took the 5 a.m. train to Olympic Park to set up our facility and make sure all our newspapers were printed and ready for distribution. My favorite memory of the Olympics was walking across Olympic Park early in the morning when it was completely empty and all I could hear was the sound of my own footsteps and the Olympic flame greedily sucking gas from the cauldron before the throngs of guests arrived to drown it out. A few days before the closing ceremony, the financial backers of my company pulled out due to one of many dot-com busts on Wall Street. Suddenly, I was in Sydney with no job to return to in New York. We decided to continue production through the closing ceremonies. I also went ahead with an interview for KSL, a Mormon-owned Salt Lake City TV station that wanted to do a local boy makes good human interest story. I didn't bother to tell them that we had gone out of business and I'd be unemployed two days later. The closing ceremony was glorious. I carried the placard for Russia while a Russian athlete was to carry the Russian flag beside me. My athlete had won a gold medal the night before and, of course, went out with his buddies to celebrate. Only seconds before we were supposed to walk out onto the field, my athlete, who was still a bit drunk from the night before, turned to me and said in Russian, Oh my God, I'm going to be sick. Where's the bathroom? And disappeared into the crowd. Right then, they yelled, Russia, you're up. But I haven't got an athlete, I said. They handed me the flag and said, Just go. So I did, with the placard in one head and the Russian flag held as high as I could in the other. The humorous story of how I, the Russian-speaking grandson of Russian immigrants, ended up representing their country in the closing ceremony made the front page of several Russian national newspapers. We were all allowed to stay on the stadium floor with the athletes during the concert. I bounced around and got photographs with all my favorite athletes, then I spent the balance of my time with the Dutch team. The Dutch have always been my favorite Europeans, and we had a great time dancing with all the athletes throughout the magnificent concert. It really was the happiest time of my life, and though I didn't know it at the time, it was also the pinnacle and the glamorous end of my once glorious career. Even though my company had paid the rent on my apartment for a few more months, and I had a residency permit to stay in Australia, I decided to return to America to concentrate on my health. I moved to Miami Beach to catch up on my sleep and recover from my wonderful time in Australia. Only, it never got any better. I spent weeks, then months, sleeping 12, 13-plus hours a day, taking two, sometimes three naps a day. But the more I slept, the more tired I became. And the more tired I was, the more I self-medicated. Before I knew it, three years had passed, I had blown through my savings and my retirement, and I was addicted to methamphetamine. My old friend MCM convinced me to move back to Utah, so with my tail between my legs, I reluctantly returned home in hopes of enlisting my family's help to get my life back on track. In retrospect, what was I thinking? After all, this is the same family that for years laughed at my brother's jokes about how funny it was that fags got what we deserved when we died of AIDS, while I was attending an endless stream of funerals for the men I loved. My family is the same family that simply turned a blind eye when our Mormon bishop commanded my older brother to beat the queer out of me. The same family that in 50 years never once confronted my brother for what he did to me and to our mother. They still blame me because I won't just forget it and move on with my life. But here's the thing. 
about being the victim of violent child abuse. I think we all do our best to give ourselves happy lives and just move on as best we can. But somewhere in the back of our minds, there will always be that eternal flame of yearning for justice. We will all, always, spend our entire lives with the painful yearning for justice hidden just beneath our smile. I told myself I was returning to Utah to regain my health and possibly my career, but the truth is, I think I returned to Utah for justice. A few years later, I would give up and leave Utah, having achieved none of the above. What was I thinking? My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. <laughs>